These lectures will unpack three areas where Van Til critiqued Bart. First, Bart's doctrine of revelation, and we'll ask the question, is it direct or indirect? Second, Bart's doctrine of God, God is Jesus Christ. Third, Bart's doctrine of reconciliation, universalism reconsidered. Before getting to the doctrine of revelation, a quote from Christianity and Bartianism is in order. This quote shows up at the end of the volume. This is Van Til, and I quote, When Machen found himself compelled thus to speak of liberalism as having denied in fact, though having confessed in word, the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, he did not do so from personal animosity. He did so from a deep desire in his heart that liberals might return to an acceptance of the grace of God in Christ as the only way of salvation for man and his world. If then we are forced by the facts of the case to think of Bardianism, for all its speaking of election in Christ as being, like liberalism, a religion of man's own devising, we too, like Machen, must do so from a sincere desire for the salvation of men through the Christ of the Scriptures. Speaking as objectively as we can, we must say that as in Machen's time, liberalism, while propagated in the church as though it were the gospel, was in reality a man-made religion. So Bardianism, using the language of Reformation theology, is still only a higher humanism. There are three points of note here which orient us to Van Til's critique. First, for Van Til, Bardianism is another form of modernism. This is clear from the title of his first volume called The New Modernism. For Van Til, Bardianism is a higher humanism. It too starts its theology from man's own devising. Some may ask, how can that be? Bart was known for his emphasis on the word of God. He begins with a God who is wholly other. Liberalism began with man's feeling of absolute dependence. Didn't Bart go to the opposite position and begin with God? Having rejected liberalism, how can Bart really be one with it? Hold those questions for now. Second, from this quote, Van Til's critique is not from personal animosity. On the contrary, like Machen with regard to liberals, Van Til's desire was to serve and minister to Bart and Bardians. He believed he saw clearly how Bardianism was a false religion, and his desire was that liberals might return, along with Bardians, to accept the grace of God in Christ. Third, Bardianism and Christianity share only formal similarities. Bardianism confesses Christianity in word only, but it denies the substance thereof. While Bart uses all the right language of the tradition and even some of the structural concepts of Catholic Christianity, upon a close reading, we find that the substance of his theology is quite different. We will return to these things time and again throughout these lectures. So many more things can and should be said by way of introduction to Van Til on Bart. But I will only mention one more thing. Van Til's critique is best understood in context across his written corpus. Van Til never missed an opportunity to critique Bart. His critique remained basically consistent throughout his life, though he did refine some of the details. Nevertheless, from his review of Zerbe's book on Bart in 1931, to his New Modernism in 1946, 
to Christianity and Bardianism in 1962, and everything in between, Van Til's message was consistent. Even though it wasn't always as clear as it could be, Van Til arguably used many more words than he needed. And so the reader can get lost in much of the detail. But when the essence of his critique is distilled and a clear, consistent, and insightful critique begins to emerge, and it is my job to do that distillation for you. And so my goal is to not be comprehensive in analyzing Van Til's critique of Bart, but rather to simplify, clarify, and illuminate. Let's talk about Bart's theology then in context as Van Til understood it. I have documented the historical backdrop of Bart's theology elsewhere, but a review here is in order, and that is because it's important to understand how Van Til understood Bart. Van Til's understanding of the development of Bart's thought runs so much deeper than simply the question of influence on Bart's thought or structural similarities between Bart and other philosophers or thinkers. Therefore, it is somewhat of a fool's errand trying to counter Van Til's critique by attacking his understanding, that is to say, Van Til's understanding of Kant, Hegel, etc., etc. While Van Til does draw formal similarities between these thinkers and Bart, the real issue is not the influence of philosophers on Bart as much as Bart's influence upon himself. That is because Bart's theology develops in large part by way of reaction. And so briefly, we note just three items, three items of reaction, which contribute to Van Til's understanding of the development of Bart's thought. First is Bart's rejection of liberalism. Second, Bart's rejection of Catholicism. And third, Bart's rejection of Protestant orthodoxy. So first, Bart's rejection of liberalism. Bart was a committed liberal early on in his theology, until a number of his liberal professors supported the Kaiser during World War I. Bart was so against the war, seeing it as ostensibly evil, he couldn't understand how his professors would support it. He then explored the question of what it was about their theology that allowed them to endorse such a moral monstrosity. And it had to do with the liberal identification between God and man. Only such a theology of identification can support a particular tyrant with regard to the actions of a nation. This theology, liberalism, alone, Bart thought, enables a theologian to invest a man like the Kaiser and his war effort with divine, religious, and even Christian significance. It was the kind of Christian nationalism that Bart wanted nothing to do with. His response, given in the second edition of his Romans commentary, was to begin to differentiate God and man, to remove the humanism, as it were, from theology, and to make God be God once again, giving power and authority to his word. This idea would develop throughout his life, and it would eventually gain a kind of Christological focus. God and his grace in Christ is the great theme of his theology, and to give God and Christ their due would require giving him his own we might say, space. Bart would talk about the place or the space of God's being. God must be understood then to remain outside of man, outside and above the created order. 
The only man and the only creature to whom he relates is the man Jesus Christ. More on that later. Second, Bart's rejection of Catholicism. Bart sees liberalism and Catholicism as of the same cloth. Bart was well known for saying that the Analogia Entis is the invention of the Antichrist. The Analogia Entis, the analogy of being, according to Bart, was a medieval philosophical scheme and was most closely associated with Thomas Aquinas. The idea is that there is at root only one being. Creation is formed out of the eternal being of God. This means that God and man share a common being. And this common being is the ground for the analogical relationship between God and man. Man has being, God has being, albeit God's being is of a higher and greater kind than man's being. This metaphysical system led to an apophatic theology, that is to say a theology of negatives. The only way that we can know God is by way of negation. We know time, and God is not time, therefore He is eternal. We know physicality, God is not physical, therefore He is spirit, and so forth and so on. Man, using nature, then, can reason himself back to the being of God. This natural theology was something that Bart despised. It was just like liberalism in that it begins with man. And the, and the God he reasons toward, that is to say the God towards whom man reasons, is aloof. We can know nothing positive about him on the basis of the analogia entist. We can only know what he is not. And so Bart desired a new approach to theology and to ontology, which would take nature and reason as the ground of theology out of the equation and would rather begin with God himself. And it is here that actualistic ontology becomes attractive to Bart. We'll talk about actualistic ontology more in a moment. Third, Bart's rejection of Protestant orthodoxy. Bart saw Protestant orthodoxy as having the same problem as liberalism and Catholicism. Protestant orthodoxy also decentralizes Christ. It talks of an abstract God, sort of like medieval Catholicism, a God who has an essence that is prior to, independent of, God's mighty acts in Christ. It too, Protestant orthodoxy, has a commitment to natural theology, according to Barth. This theology is a theology abstract from God's act of self-revelation in Jesus Christ. Such theology, therefore, then, is man-centered because it is devoid of grace, evidenced by the Reformed doctrine of the covenant of works. Such a doctrine, the covenant of works, according to Bart, was proof positive of the problem at hand. How could there be a covenant? How could there ever be a relationship between God and man other than that which is founded on grace? And if that covenant was devoid of grace, then it must be devoid of Christ. And such a Christless theology cannot possibly be Christian, according to Karl Barth. And so he rejects all three systems. In summary, three points matching the above <clears throat> I will give here. First of all, because of liberalism, Barth spoke of God as holy other. Second, because of Catholicism and its abstract notion of God, Bart spoke of God as holy with man. Third, against Protestant orthodoxy, Bart spoke of God in Christological terms, 
God is the God who He is by virtue of His grace in Jesus Christ. Now, this is just a thumbnail sketch of Bart in context as Van Til understood the development of Bart's thought. So now let's turn to the first subject at hand, which is Bart's doctrine of revelation. Is it direct or is it indirect? According to Van Til, there are two steps to understanding Bart's doctrine of revelation. First, God is wholly hidden in history. So as you can see here on the board, the H here standing for history, this is the realm of man and the created order. And for man and the created order in history, God is wholly hidden. He is completely, totally unknown. Second, God is wholly revealed in Geshikta. This is a, another dimension, a higher dimension for Karl Barth. And here is where God and man in Jesus Christ come together in such a way that God is wholly revealed in Geshikta. So this is Bart's dialectical two-step. First, let's talk about how God is wholly hidden, how he is wholly hidden in history. Van Til uses history to refer to what we might call our real calendar time. History, as you can see here on the board, is distinct, wholly distinct, from Geshikta. The latter, Geshikta, denotes a transcendent time, distinct, wholly distinct from the former history. Geshikta is not our calendar time, but a special dimension of sorts, wholly different from our calendar history. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, the distinction Van Til makes between history and Geshikta is not intended to suggest that Bart always uses these particular terms as if they are technical words marking the distinction between our calendar time and that of the special transcendent dimension. That is because Bart uses all sorts of language to indicate this particular distinction. He does not tie himself to the words Geschichte and history. For example, Bart can, instead of using the word history, can use the word time. So, History is a reference to our time here within this particular sphere of our being and living and operation. <clears throat> and our time being identified with history indicates and is indicative of our real calendar time history. But whatever term we use, the reality referred to is one in which God is not present. God is wholly hidden from us in our time, completely unknown. For this world, this time, this history in which we live is fallen, and as fallen, it therefore has no place or no capacity for God. There can be no revelation here. As Van Til observes, and Bart says, revelation is historical, but history is never revelational. Now, in what sense Bart affirms that revelation is historical will be addressed presently? And it's important we do so because it's here that Bart interpreters get hung up. They assume that when he speaks of history, he does so without equivocation, especially if you're reading 
the English translations of the church dogmatics. But that's simply untrue. Bart does use that word history with equivocation or the word time with equivocation, and we'll see that in a moment. So when Van Til speaks about history, that is shorthand for how Bart views things and events which take place in our real calendar time. And in that real calendar time, there is and can be no revelation. Revelation, the act of revelation, cannot be identified with the Bible, according to Karl Barth. To recast the expression just mentioned, revelation, Barth would say, is biblical, but the Bible is not revelational. Furthermore, nature, as it exists in our real calendar time history and history, is also no medium of revelation. We know Bart's famous nine to natural theology. Nature has no capacity for God or his revelation. There is natural revelation, and there is no natural revelation. Therefore, there is no natural theology for Bart. Nature, as a carrier of revelation, is a hard no for Bart. Therefore, from our perspective, from our place as sinful creatures in a sinful creation, God is only wholly hidden. We cannot know God through our experiences, pace liberalism, nor through reason, pace Catholicism, nor through special or general revelation, pace Protestant orthodoxy. Second, God is wholly revealed in Geshikta. God is wholly revealed to man in Geshikta. If history is the place of our fallen real calendar time, then Geshikta is the place of God. The sinless history of God who has his being in his acts. It transcends completely our fallen history. In fact, it is our calendar time's opposite. And yet the two are not completely unrelated for Bart. They are in fact related, but they are related only dialectically, which we'll see momentarily. Nevertheless, they can never be identified, they can never be confused, they can never be mixed, they can never be separated either. And this is the time-place, Geshikta, this is the time-place of God's act of revelation. And here, just a brief word about the language that I'm using. Van Til uses Geshikta to denote this particular time-place, but we can use any number of terms to describe that higher dimension. We can, as Bart himself does, just uses the word history or time, place, space, sphere, or dimension, and a number of other terms. The point is, don't get tied up with the technical jargon. Bart certainly did not, and Van Til can sometimes lead us to conclude, if we are not reading broadly across his corpus, to think that history or geschichte are technical terms that Bart uses to denote these two spheres. But Bart was free to use all sorts of language to denote these two distinct spheres, and Van Til uses those terms, geschichte and history, simply as summary terms for all the other terms that Bart will employ to describe these two distinct spheres. So likewise, in the course of these lectures, I will be free to uh, be loose as well with the terminology. When you hear 
time or place or sphere or history or dimension or time sphere. Such terms all denote the same concept, referring to one of these two dimensions. And you will track well enough just understanding that there are two and only two dialectically opposed and related spheres in Barth's thinking. Van Til calls them history and geschichte, but any other like terminology can also be employed. So, in geschichte, as Van Til categorizes it, we have all things pertaining to God. This geschichte specifically is the place or the time or the history of God's gracious acts. And for our purposes here, in this lecture, God's act of revelation. It is here and here alone that God reveals Himself wholly or exhaustively. It should be immediately noted that this act of revelation does not occur in our sphere or calendar time. It occurs only in God's own sphere of time or history. This sphere, sphere just is God's history of revelation. Here is God's history of revelation. It is an act or an event that occurs when God relates to man in the God-man, Jesus Christ. At this point, a good question to ask is, toward whom is this act of revelation? Especially if this act does not occur in our time. If it's not happening in our time, to whom is God revealing himself? And the answer Bart always gives is that it is an act of revelation to us. But how can it be a re an act of revelation to us, yet wholly hidden from us? How can God be both wholly hidden, yet also wholly revealed? And this is where Bart's Christology comes to play. For Bart, Jesus Christ alone is the revelation of God. Scripture is the Word of God, but not revelation. CD 11, page 111. Jesus Christ is Himself the event of revelation where there is a concrete encounter between God and man. CD 11, page 59. In this way, revelation is not a cold, abstract thing that can be handled or manipulated by man. That is how Bart reads the tradition and the traditional view of revelation. It's something that can be handled, manipulated by man. Rather, for Bart, the act of revelation is a personal, concrete encounter between God and man. In this way, God is wholly given over to man in the humanity of Jesus Christ. God reveals not propositions or not propositional truths, but He reveals His very self, His very being. Revelation is a divine act, then, and as such, when He reveals Himself in His own transcendent history, He leaves none of Himself behind. He is wholly revealed to man in the man, Jesus Christ. In Revelation, then, you'll notice, there is no Lagos Sarkos, no, no Lagos, no word, the word as in John 1.1, 1, 1, there is no word that is apart from human flesh. That is, the eternal word just is Jesus Christ, according to Karl Barth. In God's time, 
which he has for us in Christ, God is wholly revealed without remainder. Bruce McCormick puts it this way. Revelation is not the divine bestowal of information. It consists rather in the self-giving of God so that what is known in Revelation is God himself, God in his being and indeed in his very essence. In other words, to put it in Van Til's terms, in Geshikta, God is wholly revealed. You will then notice the Christological arrangement here. God does not reveal himself in our time, but in his time. So revelation isn't happening here, neither in special nor natural revelation. It doesn't happen in nature nor in scripture. Revelation only occurs up there. Here and only here have we have, do we have God's time for us. This is where in that particular sphere of Geshikta, God gives himself over to humanity fully and wholly. So here we have the revealing God and the revealed to man in this one act of revelation in Jesus Christ. So when Bart says that God reveals himself to us or to the creature or to man, the creature, man, the us that is being referred to by Bart, is the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's not us now living here in our real calendar time history. It is a reference to that transcendent event in which God reveals himself to man in the man, Jesus Christ. That humanity of Christ is not altogether unrelated to us for Bart. Bart does affirm that the humanity of Christ is our humanity, sin and all. So that when God gives himself in the event of revelation to us in the humanity of Christ, it is a real, true revelation to man, because the real, true man is the man, Jesus Christ. However, it has no direct epistemological effect on us living here and now. In fact, it would not affect us at all were it not for the witness to it that is found in Scripture and in the preaching of the church. Only here in Scripture and in the preaching of the church, can we gain indirect and only indirect knowledge of God. Let's turn to some comments about Van Til's critique of this system. For Van Til, this approach raises significant concerns. First, for Bart, revelation is indirect. From our perspective, God's revelation is known only indirectly. Since it is an event that occurs in God's history, Geshikta, and not ours, we cannot access it directly. It is, to be sure, testified to in Scripture, according to Bart. It is testified to in church proclamation. But we can only access revelation through these means. We cannot access it directly. To be sure, there is direct revelation for Karl Barth. God reveals himself to man directly in God's history, but not in our history. A brief word about the witness of Scripture and preaching to Revelation. Something to note here. These witnesses, Scripture and preaching according to Barth, are fallible witnesses to the act of revelation in Geshikta. 
Bart is clear that Scripture is not the revealed Word of God. It is a written, fallible, human witness to Revelation, and therefore it can be called the Word of God. But it is not the revealed Word of God. It is not Revelation as such. And as such, the Scriptures are fallible. They are subject to error. But it is also authoritative when God in His grace, as it is received by faith, makes it to become the Word of God. But Bart denies that the Scripture is itself, directly, the inspired, inerrant, and infallible revelation of God. Just a brief sidebar on what is or is not in view when speaking of direct revelation. Alex Tsang, in his book on Bart, misunderstands what Bart affirms about indirect revelation and what Van Til affirms about direct revelation. Tsang indicates that when Bart affirms indirect revelation, he is only affirming what the Reformed tradition has affirmed all along, namely that God reveals himself through created media and not in an unmediated fashion. But that is not what Van Til is criticizing. Van Til affirms that God does not reveal his essence unmediated. Van Til is not criticizing Bart for affirming mediated revelation. For Van Til, the problem is not that Bart denies direct access to the essence of God. It's not that Bart affirms mediated revelation. That's not the problem. Van Til's objection is that for Bart, it is revelation itself which is indirectly known. For Bart, we have no direct experience of revelation. It can only be known indirectly through fallible witnesses. Both Van Til and Bart deny unmediated revelation of the divine essence. They agree on that point. But Van Til, with the tradition, affirms that we have direct access to revelation. That is because Van Til affirms, unlike Bart, that God reveals himself within the sphere of our calendar time in both nature and scripture. Because Bart denies that God reveals himself in our time, whether in scripture or in nature, our access to revelation can only be indirect. It can only be secondhand. Sang mistakenly thinks that Van Til is concerned that Bart denied direct access to the divine essence, when in reality, that was not Van Til's concern at all. Rather, he is concerned that Bart denies direct access to revelation, and that is precisely what Bart does. We have no access to experience God's revelation in this sphere in which we live. So to illustrate just briefly, for Bart, Scripture and preaching, they can witness to revelation, but they never can break that line. And God's revelation never breaks this line. So we are left here only with witnesses to what is above, but we cannot gain access to the act of revelation in Jesus Christ itself. Second, <clears throat> this introduces, according to Van Til, this whole concept, this whole scheme, introduces a rationalism, irrationalism dialectic in the thought of Bart. 
The denial of direct revelation causes some serious problems, according to Van Til. In particular, it introduces a rational, irrational dialectic, which by the nature of the case must necessarily be so. But the question is, how is it so? On the one hand, Bart's two-sphere dialectic, the Geschichte in history as we've outlined it here, is the source of the problem. For Bart, he has two modes of revelation, direct revelation in God's time and indirect for us in our time. And since we have no direct access to revelation, we are left here without a true basis for knowledge. So again, that line always obtains. We have no access to what has happened or is happening up there. Having the scriptures is not sufficient to give us access to direct revelation because the scriptures are only fallible witnesses. So being left with no direct access to the revelation of God, our thinking must necessarily be irrational. Our thinking, our knowing, in other words, is without ground. We only can grasp for the truth, making use of our natural resources and at best a fallible Bible and fallible preaching. Therefore, what we are left with down here to do theology must necessarily be a speculative natural theology of the most consistent kind. And that is where the rationalism comes in. Just as in our time, God is wholly hidden from man, so in God's time, He is exhaustively revealed. So here, here it's irrationalism because our theology has no ra reason or rationale for establishing itself because we cannot gain access to revelation. And now, up here in Geshikta, there is an exhaustive relationship between God and man in this particular act of revelation. And this is where the rationalism occurs. Van Til says that there is an identity between God and man in Geshikta. Jesus Christ is God, and God is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, man, in the humanity of Christ, has comprehensive, exhaustive knowledge of God. This is why the arrows go both ways. Man gains exhaustive knowledge of God in this act of revelation in Jesus Christ, as well as God gives himself wholly over to man in this act of revelation in Jesus Christ. And this idea then betrays the modern impulse in Bart. It is a common assumption of modern thought that in order for God to be known truly, he has to be known comprehensively or exhaustively. But Reformed theology, says Van Til, has always affirmed that while God is incomprehensible, we can nevertheless know him truly, even if we don't know him exhaustively. But Bart says that in this one act of revelation in God's time for us, God is wholly given over to man in Jesus Christ, and man wholly receives God in himself in Jesus Christ. Well, that's well and good for the humanity of Christ, but we here, now back down in history or in our time, we're still left without revelation. 
And so we nevertheless begin to construct our theology on irrational grounds. We speak our minds, we articulate our thoughts, but we do so on the basis of, according to Bart, merely human resources. We use our minds, we use our reason, and we use a fallible book called the Bible. But we have no certain word here. It is, in a way, natural theology of the highest order, the most consistent order. Of course, Bart would reject that notion, but be that as it may, that is the system of theology that he built. And that is why Van Til could call Bartianism a higher humanism. It is more humanistic than even liberalism. Schleiermacher at least began with something experienced. Bart begins with what cannot be known or experienced. Therefore, all his theology is constructed as a kind of legal fiction. It is, in fact, the most consistent kind of speculative theology. And while Bart did, not, did do a lot of exegesis and spoke highly of the scriptures, that was a happy inconsistency in his thought. At the end of the day, Bart could not consistently construct a theology on the basis of sola scriptura. In this way, Van Til was absolutely correct. Bardianism from the foundation, far from advancing Christianity, is actually a betrayal of it and is a different religion altogether. Some summary thoughts in conclusion. The idea that Bart denied direct revelation should be clear enough, at least once we understand what is meant by the term. Part of the problem, it seems, is lack of consistency in reading Bart. Some of the best commentators on Bart put into place, rightly, his basic commitments. For example, that revelation is not propositional, but a person. For example, Hunziger's exposition of Bart's personalism is, is spot on, as far as I could tell. McCormick is clear on the actualistic nature of revelation. And it is no point of controversy that Bart said that only Jesus Christ is revelation. And the other forms of the word are only witnesses to this act of revelation. But with all these parts in place, revelation still remains indirect to us. If revelation is itself the event of God's self-giving in Jesus Christ, in God's particular special time or history that He has for us in His grace, then it cannot be a given of our time. Revelation is never given over to us in our time sphere. At no point does God give His act of revelation over to us to handle, to manipulate, to exegete. Rather, it is always an event that takes place in God's own time. And the obvious conclusion to that is, look though we may, we cannot find revelation in our own experience. It's not in the creature, it's not in nature, it's not in ourselves, and it most certainly is not in the Bible or the church, although the Bible and the church bear witness to it. This is a very self-conscious move by Bart and should be relatively uncontroversial among anyone who has read Bart. It is a calculated move to counter all the problems that he finds in everything from medieval Catholicism to Protestant orthodoxy and to liberalism. All of them have God and his revelation contained within our own time sphere. That's what they all have in common. For Rome, it's natural theology and the Analogia Entis. For Protestant orthodoxy, it's the scriptures and infallible Bible. For liberalism, it is a sense of experience and feeling of utter dependence. All within our time sphere. 
And Bart takes all of that away from Catholicism, Protestant Orthodoxy, and liberalism. I suspect that there is a good reason why the best interpreters of Bart fail to see this or at least follow it out to its most logical conclusions. Frankly, I don't think they can swallow the pill that Bart is offering. The Bartian whiskey is a little bit too strong for them, I suppose. Each has a little American evangelicalism in them, and they cannot or are unwilling to believe that Bart actually denies that we have direct access to Revelation. Or they rightly realize what the consequences are to that commitment. Perhaps they can see that such a commitment leads to a higher form of speculative theology, and they don't want to put Bart in that camp. They don't want to put Bart in the camp of a kind of modernized version of natural theology, which is precisely what it is. And if they were to admit that, they really would have to give up Bart altogether because then Bart would really not fit their most ultimate basic convictions. And why they are so de dedicated to the man is beyond me. Bardianism, according to Van Til, and according to what I'm saying here, is a failed project. Not that there isn't anything to learn from Bart, of course there is, but it has no foundation or potential for a positive, constructive theology that edifies the church. And certainly, if any constructive theology can be had, it is not that of a faithful Protestant theology. It can only be a faithfully modern theology. It knows nothing of the deeper Protestant conception. But modern is precisely what it is. For all of Bart's opposition to Schleiermacher, his theology is really one with his. Commonalities between Bart and Schleiermacher have been recognized in recent scholarship, including that of Matthias Gockel and Bruce McCormick. What all interpreters miss, however, is that both Schleiermacher and Bart built their theology on the foundation of speculation. Schleiermacher thinks he avoids speculation by grounding it in experience, and Bart thinks that he does so by grounding it in revelation. But both Schleiermacher and Bart reject the idea of a direct revelation of God in Scripture. As such, the former builds off of a fallen human experience, and the latter off of a supposed fallible witness. In other words, both operate within the sphere of modern commitments to autonomous human thought. For both, God and His knowledge is inaccessible to us. Therefore, the theological enterprise begins with human autonomy for both theologians. For we either begin with human autonomy or we begin with revelation. Both Schleiermacher and Bart are committed to the former because they reject our direct access to the latter. Now, this problem is only the beginning. And it is precisely because of this problem that the rest of Bart's system shows further problems. Given his starting point in human autonomy, Bart is unable to subject himself wholly to the Scriptures. All that despite his detailed work in exegetical theology, of which there are many pages written. And now, having given up direct revelation, errors can only begin to pile up. And in the next lecture, we'll begin to consider Bart's doctrine of God. How do we understand it? How is it similar and how is it different from the received tradition? And along the way, we will look to Van Til to guide us.